Welcome to the My Buddy Green podcast. I'm Jason Wachab, founder and co-CEO of My Buddy Green, and your host. Hey everyone, cardiovascular disease is incredibly common. In fact, it's the leading cause of death in America. So imagine if there was a treatment that could eradicate cardiovascular disease. It would make front page news, right? Well, according to Dr. Peter Atia, a treatment does exist that can basically take CVD off the table as a risk factor for mortality. Yes, there is a pharmaceutical available on the market right now that can eliminate CVD. So why is no one talking about it? Look, at Mind Buddy Green, we believe food is medicine and lifestyle interventions are key when it comes to reducing your risk of serious health outcomes. And on a personal level, I tend to think of pharmaceutical interventions as a last resort. But look, lifestyle can get us only partially there in reducing our risk for CBD, according to Peter. But pharmaceuticals can get us 100% there. And I think that's certainly worth a conversation. This leads me to today's episode with Dr. Peter Atia. Peter is one of the brightest minds in the field of longevity and is making waves with his new book titled Outlive and his podcast, The Drive. He is a Stanford, Johns Hopkins, and NIH-trained physician who serves on the editorial board for the scientific journal Aging. Peter has a fascinating perspective on how we can eradicate CBD with both lifestyle modifications and pharmaceuticals. Peter's someone who can go quite, quite deep on a variety of topics, so given our limited time, I tried to cover a lot of ground. However, this is one of my favorite recent conversations, and it's given me lots to think about personally. I think you'll enjoy it. Peter, welcome. Jason, thanks for having me. So great to have you. I am such a huge fan of your work, your podcast, and Outlive. Uh, your latest book is a masterpiece. So congratulations and such an honor to have you on the show. Thank you. You know, just a little, little bit of context, my passion for longevity, uh, more specifically health span, stems from men in my family. You know, you, you've shared this you know, as well. Uh, men in my family do not have a good track record with longevity. My father died of heart disease at 47. My maternal grandfather died of heart disease at 49. And my paternal grandfather died of cancer at 44. And I'm 48 and I have two little kids. I know you have little children. And that that drives my my passion for the subject. And, and on this subject, you know, you are the best. So I, just briefly, you know, talk a little bit about your why on this focus on health span and behind the why behind this book? Well, I mean, it, it really just has grown out of my own obsession, which is very personal and very much um, began with the birth of my daughter uh, when I was 35. So that's almost 15 years ago. And, and I think her birth was like anybody who's had kids is a kind of unique experience. The first time you have a child, I think, I think both for men and women, there must be some really unbelievable genes that go into overdrive in terms of transcription in that moment. Um, and maybe for women, they start a bit sooner during the pregnancy, but at least for men, the second she's born, it's, you know, it's, it's hard to describe. Um, and it really was the first time my thinking started to deviate off pure performance, which had always been my passion. I'd always been kind of an extreme athlete and I really, I guess, just sort of recognized in that moment that, you know, I want to be around as long as possible because this moment is so profound and my love for this little thing is so profound and maybe I'll have more of these and maybe they will have little things. And, uh, it, it just, it just was a, a, a real shift in thinking. Uh, and like you, I, <clears throat> I don't have great genes. Um, all the men in my family, almost without exception, uh, died of heart disease, and many of them very, very prematurely, uh, also dying in their 40s and 50s. So that was just, you know, a moment when I realized I needed to understand this better than I already did, um, and that quest ultimately, you know, led me to want to understand everything. How do you mitigate the risk of cancer and neurodegenerative disease and metabolic disease and all of the things that are going to ultimately get us one way or the other? And eventually that just sort of, uh, you know, permeated into a book. 
So with that said, as you say in the book, if you do want to live a long life, you need to understand the obstacles, the, the four horsemen, as you say, the four elephants in the room that, that lead to death. So CBD, cardiovascular disease, number one. Could you walk us through the other three? I think it's worth just spending a moment on number one because it's so profound and I think it doesn't actually get the attention it deserves. So uh, in the United States, you know, it, it is an excess of, you know, cardiovascular death um, and cerebrovascular disease death. Those are, you know, probably on the order of uh, 30%, 20% more than the deaths attributed to cancer. When you think about it globally, it's even more profound. In other words, the gap between heart disease and, and in the number two killer cancer is even bigger. Uh, we're talking about 19 million versus about 11 or 12 million. So it's a, it's an enormous chasm. It's also the number one killer for men and women. So it's, it's easy, I think, to think of heart disease as kind of a male disease, but it's actually the leading killer of women uh, as well. And in fact, you know, for as, as understandable as it is that a woman would be afraid of breast cancer, um, you know, she's somewhere between eight and 10 times more likely uh, to die from cardiovascular disease uh, than she is from breast cancer. So cardiovascular disease is number one. Cancer of all causes is number two. And then basically number three for a non-smoking population is going to be uh, neurodegenerative disease of which Alzheimer's disease is the most common, but certainly not the only one. We also have Parkinson's disease, Lewy body dementia. And then we also have forms of dementia that fit kind of outside of the neurodegenerative pathway, such as vascular dementia and uh, frontal temporal lobe dementia and things like that. So the final horseman is less a single disease and more a spectrum of diseases that directly don't kill that many people relative to those three horsemen, but indirectly might be the single greatest killer of them all because it amplifies the risk of everything else dramatically. And that's the, the suite of metabolic diseases that ranges from at one end of the spectrum, hyperinsulinemia, elevated levels of insulin, insulin resistance, fatty liver disease, and at the other end of the spectrum, type 2 diabetes. So I consider that just a continuum of metabolic health or dishealth. And while the actual number of people who are dying from fatty liver disease or type 2 diabetes is, you know, large but not seismic, having those conditions is doubling on an order of magnitude your risk of everything else we talked about. But as you point out in the book, we really haven't, in medicine, you, you go through medicine 1.0, 2.0, and 3.0, and there have been incredible advancements, but to some degree, we, we haven't done so well here in terms of these four horsemen. And I'm curious, what's your take on the drivers? Is it is it overeating? Is it eating the wrong things? Is it too much sugar? Is it lack of exercise? Is it mental health, emotional health, environmental factors, lack of sleep? Is it all the above? And there are lots of theories, and this is in our world about, you know, it, it's, it's, it's one thing, it's all these things. What, what's your take if you had to summarize? So I think there's kind of two things going on as to the why, right? So you know, I talk about medicine 1.0, medicine 2.0, and medicine 3.0. And medicine 2.0, which is the era we live in now, has been remarkable at dealing with what I describe in the book as fast death. Uh, so the we used to basically mostly <laughs> we, we used to basically just die of fast death, right? So we were dying of trauma and dying from infections. That's effectively what killed us for most of civilization and beyond civilization, right? So, so you go back uh, millions of years, that's how we died. And the advent of medicine 2.0, which really kind of took hold in the latter part of the 19th century, uh, primarily on the basis of three things, the change in the way of thinking. So the introduction of the scientific method, the uh, invention of the light microscope, and then the development of antimicrobial agents. Those three things basically heralded in a new era. And all of a sudden, we were in a very short period of time, meaning in a matter of decades, we were able to reduce the rate of slow death, uh, pardon me, of fast death, so much so that we effectively doubled, mortal uh, doubled life expectancy. So over the past hundred years, we've watched our life expectancy go from about 40 to about 80, just directionally. Um, but in that period of time, as you point out, we haven't really made much success, if any, 
against slow death. Slow death are the death that the horsemen are basically all the slow deaths. So anything that you see within the horsemen uh, has taken forever. So even if someone drops dead suddenly from a heart attack and you say, well, gosh, that was very sudden. That was a very fast death. It wasn't. The process was going on for decades, uh, at, at least you know 20 or 30 years. This was slowly building. So there's two things, as I said, that are happening. The first is we're simply living long enough to uh, be entrenched in the disease processes that lead to slow death. So that's kind of the glass half full approach, which is since we stopped dying so young from things that were killing us, we now have more time to be exposed to the disease processes that lead to slow death. But we also know that modernity itself is probably accelerating uh, fast death, uh, pardon me, slow death greatly through all of the things that you mentioned. So we're clearly overnourished, we're undermuscled, we're underslept, we're overstressed. All of those things dramatically, directly, and indirectly impact our state of health. So there is clearly a scenario whereby we can avoid the pitfalls of fast death, which is of course the most important benefit of modernity, but not be so intoxicated by all of the other things that come with it that I think there's a needle to thread where we can live a bit longer and more importantly, live at a much higher quality than we do. So before we come back to, to nourishment and, and exercise and being under muscles, I want to spend a little time on cardiovascular disease, given it is the number one killer. And as you point out, it begins decades before, you know, and, and you've talked about a story where there's an autopsy of, of someone who dies in their twenties, I think from a, an act of violence and CBD has already started. And, you know, I think one of your greatest contributions has been that you've really put APOB, the, the, the marker APOB on the, at the forefront of the CBD conversation. So if there's one takeaway from this show, and there will be many for you, get know what your APOB is. You know, you can, there's a lot to look at there, but APOB, APOB, and, and that that is a powerful one. And, and thank you for that. And my question there on a personal level, and I think everyone's gonna wanna know this is, okay, I, I can find out what my APOB is. Let's talk about how you view healthy levels of APOB and, and your goals for APOB and fundamentally, how do we get there? Well, uh, I'll defer to you, Jason, but should, should I assume that the listener knows what APOB is? I, I would do a brief synopsis. We've talked about it quite a bit, but for, there are probably people new on here. So maybe a brief primer on what it is. So APOB is a, is a protein that is wrapped around uh, lipoproteins, but particularly a class of lipoproteins that are harmful, that are what we call atherogenic, meaning that they promote atherosclerosis. So the most prevalent of these is the LDL or the low density lipoprotein, but they're also found on very low density lipoproteins, intermediate density lipoproteins and LP little a particles, which we should maybe talk about another time. So basically any particle that has the potential to carry cholesterol <clears throat> into your artery wall, leave it there, get an, you know, become oxidized and create the inflammatory response that leads to this number one killer. That's the thing we want to understand. And while <clears throat> most people, when they go to the doctor, have their LDL cholesterol measured, that's the number LDLC, that's just telling you how much cholesterol is contained within the LDL particles. And while that's a decent predictor of cardiovascular risk, it's nowhere near as good as measuring the concentration or counting basically the number of all of those particles. And that's what APOB is measuring because of the very beautiful fact that each atherogenic particle has one and only one APOB on its surface. So by measuring the concentration of APOB, you have a direct measurement of the concentration of atherogenic particles. So with that said, there are basically four things that are driving atherosclerosis. Smoking, high blood pressure, uh, insulin resistance and uh, you know hyperinsulinemia, elevated levels of glucose, all the things that cluster around metabolic disease and APOB. Now what's interesting about APOB 
<clears throat> is that it is a necessary but not sufficient criteria for atherosclerosis. What that means is you can't get atherosclerosis without ApoB. So the implication of this is actually profound. The implication of this is if you want to eradicate atherosclerosis, all you would have to do is eradicate ApoB. Now, of course, you'd have to do that early enough in life because it's a time exposure. You, you pointed out the example I write about in the book of a 24 or 26 year old who's the victim of a homicide. So he dies of a very clear cause of death, but on autopsy, his coronary arteries already demonstrate quite advanced atherosclerosis. That is not an uncommon finding. That's a finding that has been reproduced over and over on autopsy studies. So what we know is that when children are born, their ApoB is very low. It's typically on the order of 20 to 30 milligrams per deciliter. However, by the time you're in your 20s and certainly in your 30s, the average person's ApoB is about 100 to maybe 110 milligrams per deciliter. And that's already very high from the standpoint of prevention. In fact, only 20% of adults would have an ApoB below 80 milligrams per deciliter. Now, no one knows what the exact number is, but certainly Peter Libby, who I would consider the foremost authority on this at Harvard, has argued that if ApoB is in the range of 20 to 30 milligrams per deciliter, i.e. what's referred to as physiologic levels, the level that children have, atherosclerosis would be impossible. And so the question then becomes, how could one get their ApoB that low? And outside of perhaps the most draconian dietary you know, modifications that would not be sustainable, right? So you know, just living on lettuce and celery, for example, um, it basically would require pharmacotherapy to get your ApoB that low. So there's obviously great heterogeneity genetically, um, and absolutely uh, nutrition makes a difference. The two most important ways it does is by reducing triglycerides and probably reducing saturated fat intake. Uh, but, but even once those things are fully optimized, very few people would be able to get their ApoB below, say, 70 milligrams per deciliter with those things being fully optimized as adults. This gets particularly more difficult in women when they go through menopause because the reduction of estrogen further complicates this. And so women will typically see a significant bump in their ApoB as they transition through menopause. And this explains two things. One, pre-menopause women have some protection from cardiovascular disease, that some of which might be mitigated or mediated through estrogen. And secondly, eventually women kind of catch up in terms of heart disease once they lose the protection of estrogen, which of course isn't complete protection, but sort of partial protection. So a lot to unpack there with regards to, to diet. You know, so use me for example. My ApoB was 91. I'm listening to you. I said, wow, I need, I, need to get, I need to do better here. And I actually, in terms of nutrition, we had just moved to Miami. I didn't really make any changes to my diet. We were eating, I was being a tourist in a new city, going out to eat a lot, you know, having a little more French fries than I would like to have. However, I was doing more strength training. And my ApoB, when I tested it again, was 75. And it's the only thing I can point to because my diet really wasn't, you talk about saturated fat, like I wasn't really doing, my diet was not that great. D does exercise play any role in lowering APOB or maybe I was just lucky? You know, there's there's so much variation in it that I, it's hard to make a, a distinction based on one measurement. Um, but I would say that a reduction from 90 to 75-ish would be, if it were reproducible, would be uh, a very unusual response to just changing exercise. Exercise certainly has a beneficial effect on lipoproteins. That's a pretty big effect. Interesting. Because I think, you know, now that this, well, this is the big question, now that we're all zeroing in on ApoB, how do we, you know, there are a whole host of folks who would try to get ApoB as low as possible with just lifestyle modification and don't want to live on lettuce and celery. That's not appealing. So what can we do? And it sounds like 
we don't really have much of an answer other than maybe lower sat fat. Well, the pharmacotherapy today, and and you know, I, I, it's a very controversial topic for understandable reasons. I think that the last call it four years has definitely withered the public's trust in the medical establishment and certainly the pharmaceutical industry. But you know, one has to be careful not to throw the baby out with the bathwater. And there are a handful of areas where I think the pharmaceutical industry has been surprisingly effective. Um, and there are other areas where it's been, I think, quite frankly, just a, a gross misuse of resources and, um, you know, an abomination, right? We could, we could spend hours talking about sort of this scam that is half of, you know, oncologic drugs at this point. Um, but when it comes to lipid lowering therapy, we are in kind of an unprecedented time since about 2015. So if you go back to the first realization that lowering lipids was valuable, this is circa 1960 was when it became pretty clear that there was something going on between the cholesterol in your blood and the cholesterol that could be measured, you know, indirectly in your blood via these lipoproteins and your risk of heart disease. But the early efforts to try to treat that were abysmal failures. It really wasn't until the introduction of statins that, uh, which occurred in the 1980s, so call it 40 years ago, that we really started to see a benefit. But even those early statins came with so many side effects that, you know, the idea of using them prophylactically for what we call primary prevention, so meaning in someone like you or I who maybe at higher risk, but certainly haven't had a heart attack, that would, that would be considered kind of a crazy idea given the side effects. And so they were largely reserved for people who had already had heart attacks. Um, you can probably guess that I don't think that's a great way to do things. You know, waiting until a smoker has lung cancer to tell them to stop smoking, not going to be nearly as effective as getting people to stop smoking the second they pick up a cigarette. And so what we have today are not just statins that have much better side effect profiles. They still, by the way, cause side effects in about 5% of people. But we have other classes of drugs called PCSK9 inhibitors um, or another drug called azetamide that blocks the reabsorption of um, cholesterol in the gut that is being recirculated by the liver. And even another drug that impairs cholesterol synthesis called bempandoic acid. These are drugs that have no side effects. Um, and yes, while they cost more, hopefully that's changing, but it certainly makes it now technically feasible to get everybody's ApoB to a desirable level. And, and really it just becomes a question of physician and patient education around understanding the temporal nature of the disease. And so those three were PCSK9 and what were the other two? Uh, PCSK9 inhibitors, uh, and then ezetimibe and bempandoic acid. And they don't have side effects. No, the bempandoic acid is a is a cholesterol synthesis inhibitor, but it's it's a pro drug that is metabolized by the liver and therefore only impairs cholesterol synthesis in the liver. Whereas statins kind of do it globally, and that's probably why five percent of people experience side effects to statins because it's acting quite globally. And how expensive are those three drugs? Well, ezetimibe is not terribly expensive, but a PCSK9 inhibitor and bempandoic acid, if you pay for them out of pocket, if your insurance company would not approve them, would be $500 a month. Okay. That is pricey. But again, if you're concerned about heart disease. And so, okay, if we take a step back and say everyone has CBD, no matter what age you are, you do have, and you pointed this out in the book too, even if you die of, you know, 99 of, of something else when they open you up there is yeah every everybody dies with it a number of people die from it and so okay this is the number one killer we've identified apob as the the, the gun so to speak that the, <laughs> that that and if and if you can obliterate it why wouldn't assuming this were reasonable and every insurance carrier covered it why wouldn't everyone who has any heart disease in their family not take this? That's a great question. I, I don't. I don't know the answer uh, to that question, um, but it certainly baffles me. But but like you know, it baffles me because you know I've heard you talk about Ozempic, and Ozempic is kind of. <laughs> 
you know, I, I think without going down that rabbit hole, I think people are thinking about Ozempic as I got to lose a few pounds and that's not really the use case. And that seems to be in the media and, it, you know, yes, obesity and, and diseases of metabolic health are, are a big problem, but coming back to CBD, ApoB, ApoB drives CBD. This can essentially obliterate your ApoB. Why wouldn't, why isn't everyone talking about this right now? And I agree with like with pharma, look, there's a lot of bad there too, but this seems like one thing that's huge in a, in a good way. Yeah. This is one of the things pharma has done largely correctly. Um, the truth of it is I think most physicians aren't aware of the discussion we're having. I mean, most physicians would think that this, I mean, I'll, I'll tell you a very common discussion I have with physicians. So, you know, they'll say, well, that's, that's too aggressive. We don't need to lower cholesterol that much or ApoB. And I would say, well, why not? And they would say, well, there's, you know, it can't be healthy to have an ApoB level of 20 to 30. I would say, well, let's examine that fact, right? Virtually every species on earth has an ApoB that is lower than that, if even at all, right? Meaning that ApoB is not necessary for the survival of any other species. Secondly, children, as I pointed out earlier, have very, very low levels of ApoB. And if any member of our species is dependent on cholesterol and the use of cholesterol as a building block for cells, for neurons, for myelination, it would be children. They're under a, a rapid state of growth. And yet they manage to do just fine with very low levels. Because of course, the cholesterol that you measure in your circulation is a tiny fraction. It's about 10 to 15% of your total body pool of cholesterol. So once you get through all of that, what it really comes down to is a philosophical discussion about risk and causality. So the current standard of care is only to treat preventatively for cardiovascular disease with respect to lipid management based on a five to 10 year risk time horizon. So there are a number of risk calculators that estimate a person's five to 10 year risk of what's called a major adverse cardiac event. So a heart attack, stroke, death. And the general guideline says, unless that level reaches 5%, the, the cost of treating is not worth it. Now, I disagree with that simply and fundamentally, and I could debate all the reasons why, and I think I do so in the book, uh, hopefully well. But, but that's the first part of it is I fundamentally disagree that a five to 10 year risk horizon is adequate. I think we should be looking at lifetime risk. Um, and the second issue, which feeds into lifetime risk is I think the most important. And usually when I have this discussion with a physician, they, they generally don't have a response to this if they continue to disagree. And that is the issue of causality. Causality is everything in science. And so we know smoking is causally related to lung cancer. We, we know this. Now, that doesn't mean that everyone who smokes will get lung cancer because there are many smokers who don't get lung cancer. It also doesn't mean that every person who has lung cancer was a smoker. There are many people, tragically 15% of people with lung cancer are not smokers. But there is still no ambiguity about the fact that smoking causes lung cancer. It dramatically increases your risk tenfold. Well, armed with that knowledge, let's go back to the example I gave earlier. Would anybody in their right mind suggest a smoking cessation strategy which says, let's let people smoke until their five-year risk of lung cancer reaches 5%, and then we'll tell them to stop? Or let's let people smoke until the CT scan shows a nodule in their lung. No, we tell people never to smoke. And if they're smoking, we tell them to stop immediately. And so if you look at cardiovascular disease through that lens, you realize that what we're doing today is completely illogical. I'm curious of the, the pharmaceuticals, which one do you take? I take two actually. Um, actually, no, I, I'm, I'm constantly changing my routine up. I'm, I'm taking a drug called Prevastatin, which is actually a very old statin, um, but it's quite a mild statin. Um, and I take a PCSK9 inhibitor called Repatha. And that's a drug that 
you know, it's a relatively new drug. It was approved in 2015. So it's about eight years old. Do most, pe- most people you work with just take one and then maybe switch it up? Or what, how do most people start? If someone's interested and they would- Yeah, we're always trying to machinate a, a, you know, different variables. So for example, one of the things we want to do is we, we tend to want the minimum effective dose of a statin because again, statins do have side effects. Um, and even though the muscular side effects, which meaning muscle soreness are experienced in about four or 5% of people, there are other things we do pay attention to. We do pay attention to total body cholesterol production. And we don't want to impair that too much in people who are already sensitive. So for example, I'm not an enormous synthesizer of cholesterol. That's largely genetically determined. And I don't make a lot of cholesterol. Um, So I'm not a person who wants to take a mega dose of a drug that impairs cholesterol synthesis. So I take a relatively minor dose of a relatively weak version of that drug. And I get the most bang for my buck out of this PCSK9 inhibitor, um, which is a, you know, that, that's, that's really where I get the lion's share. And, and then depending on my levels, sometimes I'll add a third drug called azetamibe, which um, works via yet another mechanism of increasing or decreasing rather the absorption in the gut of the, the cholesterol we synthesize that gets circulated through the liver. Understood. So the, the, for, for someone listening who's going to call their cardiologist, it's probably going to require a, a deeper conversation. Well, it's really the sort of thing that unfortunately I think is best managed by lipidologists. So these are kind of subsets of cardiologists or internists who specialize in lipid management. And, um, you know, fortunately there, there's an organization called the, the NLA, the, the National Lipid Association, where you can kind of reach out and find out like, where is a lipidologist near you who can, who can manage this? Because again, the, the good news is most lipidologists are thinking this way to begin with, right? They're the ones that, that really think deeply about this problem. Interesting. Well, we'll definitely link to that in the show notes. You know, we briefly touched on LP little a, which is also a must have test for anyone concerned about cardiovascular disease. And as you pointed out, that that's one you really can't move the, well, you can pharmacologically help, but you, you're kind of stuck with what you have and some people are in, are born with higher LPA. I think Bob Harper put this on the map. He had sky high LPA and Anahat O'Connor wrote an article about it when he was with the New York Times. Kind of, you know, what what happened to him? And that's one everyone else should test for. And what else comes to mind? Um, you know, th- that are some tests, maybe a handful. You know, biomarkers, whether it's genetics, bloods, so forth. That like, yeah, we we have to talk about blood pressure. Still, it does play an incredible role in both uh, cardiovascular disease and neurodegenerative disease, specifically Alzheimer's disease, but all causes of dementia, um, including vascular dementia. And if that weren't enough, even if it had no bearing on your heart and brain, and it's hard to think of two organs that, you know, we wouldn't want to do without, um, its impact on the kidney is perhaps even more important and often more undetected. And so as you start to think about what's involved in living a decade longer than the actuarial table predicts. Well, certainly part of that would be avoiding dialysis. Um, And once your glomerular filtration rate, which is a marker of your kidney function, dips below a certain level, your life gets very difficult. Um, And type 2 diabetes resulting in... um, lots of glycosylated end products, um, glycosylated proteins that damage the kidney coupled with high blood pressure are so damaging to the kidney. The kidneys are a, kind of a miraculous little organ. They're, you know, they, they take up a fraction of your body weight, about 2%. And yet they're receiving with every beat of your heart, 20 to 25% of your blood flow. So because of the nature of their job, having to filter blood and get rid of toxins, and manage electrolytes and glucose and all these other things, um, they have this enormous exposure. And therefore, blood pressure that's too high is very damaging to these microscopic tiny capillaries there. And so we see this all the time where we see people that have been walking around with low-grade, untreated high blood pressure. And by the time they're 60, they have the kidneys of a 90-year-old. So what in the same way, like the standard for a, your standard for APOB is is much lower than, you know, what's going to show come across in your in your lab work as being 
in a in range, so to speak. What's your range for blood pressure? What do you like to see? My data here are very actually are, are quite in line with the medical establishment, as established by the most recent enormous trial on this called the Sprint trial. And the Sprint trial uh, Sprint trial demonstrated the significant advantage of keeping blood pressure at or below 120 over 80, even relative to say 130 over 85, which used to be considered normal. So, you know, here's actually an example of where I'm in complete agreement with, with how I think most people who specialize in treating blood pressure would think. I think the problem here is one of implementation and awareness on the part of the population. I don't think most people know their blood pressure. And when you go to the doctor's office, you're not really getting an accurate blood pressure. You're, you know, you're very likely to be susceptible to white coat hypertension. Um, and even if you're not, rarely is a protocol correctly used for measuring blood pressure. Um, it's very important where your arm is in relation to your heart. It has to be at the exact same level. Can't be above it. Can't be below it. You need to be resting for five minutes before you have the blood pressure checked. You can't be talking. You can't have your legs crossed. You know, all of these things have to be done. And we find the only way to really do this with our patients is frankly, just to have them do it at home twice a day, every day and keep a, a long log. That's the only way we can really get an accurate assessment of their blood pressure. So still step one is you just have to know that number. And then if it's elevated, here's an area where I think the, the sort of quote unquote lifestyle metrics do a lot more value than before you have to go down the pharmacologic route. So on that note, well, one, that's definitely happened to me, you know, recently I went in and I was nervous about something and it was like 140 over 80. And I said, all right, give me three minutes. And I, you know, to my nasal breathing, try watch my heart rate and then boom, back to 120. <laughs> uh, it happens to everyone. And on that note, I'm curious, okay, if, if I am taking one of these pharmaceutical interventions for ApoB, does that, also, does that also benefit blood pressure? Or no, that's more lifestyle modification in terms of... No. I mean, there's lots of medications for blood pressure, but um, fixing ApoB does not fix blood pressure or vice versa. Um, but we can get more bang for our buck out of lifestyle changes on blood pressure than we can ApoB. Well, well, we'll go there. So what are some of those? I, I I still want to come back to finish testing, but what quickly while we're on the subject, what are some of those lifestyle modifications that go a long way? Again, there's no surprises here. Exercise, weight loss, sleep, and stress reduction are the big ones. Those have all of those have significant impact on blood pressure. Um, and so, on the exercise front, it seems specifically more around uh, cardio training than strength training. So both are very important. But when it comes to lowering blood pressure, we probably get more bang for a buck out of cardio training. Um, and it doesn't have to be insanely intense, right? It's, you know, the kind of the zone two training that I talk about all the time. Um, you know, fixing sleep if sleep is a problem. So sleep apnea can cause blood pressure. So that's, again, another one of those things we like to rule out in everybody. So we, you know, we, we do a test that you can find online. In fact, I link to it in the book. It's called the stop bang test. And it's just a very simple questionnaire you can find online that will tell you if you're kind of high or low risk for sleep apnea. So if you come out on the stop bang test, very low risk, you're almost assuredly fine. If you come out high risk, it's really worth getting a proper sleep evaluation because undiagnosed sleep apnea, which by the way, we have a stereotype that that only exists in overweight people or only exists in people who are snoring. That's simply not the case. Uh, thin people, metabolically healthy people can still have sleep apnea, even though it's less common. So you have to make sure you don't have sleep apnea. Uh, and we have to make sure you're, you're sleeping you know, seven to nine hours a night. And if you're not, there's a, if you're sleeping outside those windows, you're at higher risk of high blood pressure. Um, weight, there's a very clear relationship between body weight and blood pressure. And so, you know, as, as one fixes body weight, should they be in the overnourished camp, as I describe it, uh, we're going to see blood pressure come down. And then the hardest one to fix, and perhaps one of the most important is actually stress. Um, you know, being in a constant state of on, just being in a sympathetic tone, the fight or flight response that's, you know, never being turned off uh, has obviously profound consequences on blood pressure. So coming back to some of those labs that we should just demand our doctor do that maybe when they're not doing, and I mentioned LPA, and that was one of my insurance to the state is still not covered. They, they it's, it's not that expensive, no big deal, but I have to demand demand a I think a lot of people have to demand they get tested for that one. What, what are some other others that immediately come to mind? Maybe a handful. 
Well, in addition to ApoB and LP little a, I think everybody should know their ApoE genotype. Um, that, that certainly gives us some additional information about the risk of cardiovascular disease and perhaps more importantly, the risk of Alzheimer's disease. Um, I think that <clears throat> knowing that information can be actually very important as you think about how to take steps to prevent uh, or at least significantly delay the onset of Alzheimer's disease. These are not deterministic genes, meaning if you have ApoE4, 4 is the isoform that is the high-risk isoform. If you have one or two copies of the ApoE4, it's not uh, it's not a given that you're going to get Alzheimer's disease, but you are at increased risk and therefore one should take you know, precautions. It's sort of like saying, you know, if you, if you had a gene that knew you were more susceptible to lung cancer, knowing that would be very valuable if you were ever tempted to smoke. It would also potentially be tempting, uh, or it would be helpful to, to inform you how to screen for that cancer, right? So we, we do this all the time, right? Women are advised if their family history is suggestive of breast cancer to make sure they don't have breast cancer genes. Why? Because they can act on that information and prevent breast cancer. Similarly, knowing that you have an ApoE4 gene uh, will allow you to do a lot of things to mitigate the risk of dementia. Other things that I think are worth understanding or paying attention to, I think, you know, um, looking at insulin, looking at uh, liver function tests, and understanding, by the way, that, um, that the laboratory standards for those things are often not what I would call uh, physiologically appropriate. In other words, the, when you look at a lab test and it says a normal range is, you know, 20 to 45, what it's usually showing you is the fifth to 95th percentile of the population currently as being tested. But if we acknowledge that, I don't know, 50% of the population is pretty unhealthy, if not more, do we really want to be compared to the middle of that population bell curve? We, we don't. So, you know, transaminases, AST and ALT are, are great examples of that, where if you, you know, for example, we don't hold our patients to the standard of the lab reference range. We, we we're using more stringent ranges. So we'll segue back to, to food, nutrition, let food, by medicine is something we, we hear quite a lot of. I'm curious, what's, what's your take on that statement? Yeah, it's attributed to Hippocrates. I have no idea if he actually said it. There's a, a lot of things that are attributed to Hippocrates that he didn't actually say, uh, including uh, first do no harm. Look, food is essential uh, and it provides both the raw, uh, raw materials for energy, first and foremost, and structure. Um, we are clearly in a world today where all of our remarkable genes and adaptations are not necessarily serving us as well as they did over millions of years leading up to this point. In other words, we've spent most of our um, genetic existence honing our relationship to nutrition in a scarcity environment. So the prioritization was on storage and the prioritization was on avoiding calamitous outcomes. Um, Starvation will kill you quickly. Overabundance of nutrition will kill you very, very slowly. So given that we're in a world where most people are overexposed to nutrition, um, it's presenting us with a whole bunch of new problems that evolution didn't really have a chance to prepare for. And so we now have to come up with solutions that might seem counterintuitive or counter to our evolutionary desires. So nutrition has, <laughs> in our space, uh, become very difficult to have a sane conversation around for, for all the reasons. And I, I, I appreciate that you stay out of that. With that said, I am curious, like, what is your personal philosophy? You know, how do you eat? What, what does Peter eat? Well, again, my, my philosophy is it always starts with three questions. Um, so if I'm, if I'm looking at a person and trying to figure out or help them figure out how they ought to be eating. I want to know if they're undernourished or overnourished. So do they have, are they carrying excess energy or not? This is a very important first question. Um, and sometimes that's just apparent looking at a person, but a lot of times it's not. A lot of times you have to go a little bit deeper and do a DEXA scan and actually look at stores of visceral fat and body fat and things like that. So let's acknowledge that it, 
sometimes is really clear that a person is over or undernourished and sometimes it's not. But that's a knowable question. The next question is, are they over or under muscled? Um, and I would really think of no one being over muscled. So I would really, I reframe that as, are you adequately muscled or under muscled? And again, sometimes that's just apparent looking at a person, but usually we don't leave that to the eye and we use a DEXA scan to tell us. And we use something called the appendicular lean mass index or the fat-free mass index, where we very objectively look at the amount of muscle mass or lean mass that they have. And we put it on a nomogram that is percentiled by their sex and age. And we like to see people, we would consider adequately muscled to be 75th percentile and higher. And that's based on the the data that are pretty unambiguous about the longevity and health benefits of having adequate muscle mass. So again, second question, are you at or above the 75th percentile for muscle mass or not? And then the third question is, are you metabolically healthy or not? And again, that's gathered by looking at triglycerides and homocysteine and insulin, glucose, oral glucose tolerance tests, all sorts of things. So when you have answers to those three questions, then you have a plan in place for nutrition. And the first order question is, do you need to reduce intake, yes or no, relative to current baseline? That's a very important question. Are you, do you need to eat more, the same, or less? Most people end up in the less category. Well, let's say for someone who's, I would say, probably healthy, doing all of the quote-unquote right things, and probably wants to gain some lean muscle mass. And we'll, we'll segue to exercise. And I'm in this camp. You know, I, I would say I'm probably adequately muscled, but, you know, <laughs> maintaining and building lean muscle mass has been a, a priority for me. And I think, I think this is at the forefront of the health and wellness conversation right now. I think a lot of people are waking up and saying, oh, wow, you know what? I wish I had a little bit more lean muscle mass for all the reasons you point out in the book and we'll, we'll touch on. And so for someone like me, which I'm assuming a lot of our listeners are, and a lot of them are going to be female as well relatively healthy, they don't have an overnourished problem, possibly undernourished when it comes to protein. So for, for that person, that archetype, if you archetype, if you will. Yeah. So we start with protein, right? Protein is the most important macronutrient in that regard. And the one that probably requires the most attention in eating the RDA, uh, which is the recommended dietary, uh, allowance is misleading. And frankly, it's incorrect. So the RDA stipulates something to the tune of 0.8 grams of protein per kilogram of body weight. And that has been misinterpreted as the ideal amount of protein intake, when in reality, it's sort of the bare minimum to not wither away. But the scenario you're describing, and presumably the scenario most people find themselves in is they want to thrive. They're, they're not looking to not, they're not, they're not in the, how do I not die tomorrow camp? They're in the, how do I like be my best self camp? And there we're talking about at least 1.2 grams of protein per kilogram of body weight. And frankly, up to about 2.2. So I'm, I, I'm at the higher end of that spectrum. Uh, just because I'm more active. And as a person gets older, they experience something called anabolic resistance. We need to push them to the higher end of that spectrum. So we kind of tell patients, look, you really want to be in the 1.5 to 2 grams of, of protein per pound of body weight camp. And you want to be getting that spread out over three to four servings per day. And I, there's biochemical reasons why that's necessary that we can get into if you want, but I've discussed them on previous podcasts. If people want to go down that rabbit hole. And, and we've also, uh, we've had Don Lehman on our show who you've had as well, who goes down the rabbit hole of leucine and protein. And I encourage everyone to go to yeah, the show notes. Don, Don is, will, Don will is incredible. All the amino acids. He's, yeah. yeah, Don's amazing. And so coming back, you know, something, I'm curious how you do that. You know, I'm, cu I'm curious what, what Peter puts in his smoothie when Peter's trying to get that 3 PM protein and you just kind of like shove something down. That's something, you know, for, for context, you know, this, we, we've met, it's been a while, but I'm six foot seven, I'm 210 pounds. That's a lot of, that's a lot of protein. And I, I struggle with it sometimes. I'm curious, what do, what do you do when you just got to figure out a way how to ingest some protein? 
Yeah, well, it's it's actually surprisingly um, consistent from day to day. I mean, I'm not really trying to recreate the wheel every day. So I like eggs. I, I, I do have a, I'm happy to talk about how I make my eggs, how I make my protein shakes, uh, what my go-to protein snack is every single day. So that's three right there. And then dinner was it, which is the easiest one to hit because, cause dinner is just such an easy meal to eat. And it's, I'm just going to rotate through different types of meat or fish at dinner. So I'm always going to, you know, I'm basically just trying to get about 45 grams of protein per serving and four servings per day. So it's really easy to get that at dinner. That requires no attention. The other three just require being a little bit deliberate with timing and delivery. So eggs, I always make kind of seven to eight. Uh, and because I'm not trying to put on calories, uh, like half of that is just white. So it's like eight egg whites and four yolks gives me the right dose. Um, my, my favorite snack is venison sticks. So uh, you know, full disclosure, I'm a investor in a company called Maui Nui Venison, and they make just hands down the best sort of venison products imaginable. Um, and so they make these jerky sticks that are just great. I love the taste and, uh, there's nothing in them, but you know, venison and pepper basically. So each stick is 9.8 grams. So call it 10. So I'll have five of those sticks as a snack. That's what I had just before we did our call today. And then a protein shake, um, for me is 50 grams of whey protein in some cashew milk and a few, uh, frozen berries and a banana or something like that. So relatively low in calories, but just, you know, very high in protein. Why cashew milk? I wouldn't have pegged you for a cashew milk guy. No, I just love the taste and I'm a little, I'm a little bit lactose intolerant. So another strategy that I'll use is Greek yogurt and some um, there's a company called you can that makes a really good granola using super starch and nuts. So I love their granola. So I'll put that granola into, you know, 50 grams worth of Greek yogurt, which is quite a bit. Um, and, and that, that would be another way to go about doing it. That's like a 32. That's a big Greek yogurt, which I'm, cu- which I'm curious, which yogurt do you, you tend to prefer Greek? Do you go with the non-fat or total? What's your view on fat and yogurt? I go 2% Greek yogurt. Yeah. The venison sticks is a good, uh, excuse me, the venison jerky is a good hack. Something I've learned to love are sardines. I wish I could. I hate them, but you're right. Those who, those who can tolerate them, I'm envious. It's a, it's such a great go-to. And so I, a lot to, a lot to go through with you. So I'm going to move on. We'll, we'll get off of food and move on to exercise because I could not talk to Peter Atia without talking about exercise and something you, you've said which I found to be fascinating and I, I'm starting to, to buy into. I used to be a guy who prioritized nutrition over everything else and that's changed for me. And I've started to prioritize exercise, not to say you know, I'm eating Twinkies and have thrown out my diet. I still eat, I would say, pretty clean, but you've said exercise is the ultimate elixir. And can you talk a bit about why that is? I think it's just because the data are so clear. You know, I, 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 you know, I hope no one listening to this thinks that that's Peter's opinion, uh, because it's not, you know, it's just a fact. Uh, it's a, it's a fact in the same way that, um, you know, having type two diabetes doubles your risk of cancer and cardiovascular disease and Alzheimer's disease. And it's a fact like smoking tenfold increases your risk of, uh, lung cancer. And similarly, if you look at all of the metrics that are associated with longevity, there are none that even come within the same zip code as having a very high cardiorespiratory fitness measured by VO2 max and having high muscle mass and having high strength. The hazard ratios associated with those things are so far in excess of the hazard ratios associated with everything else that we already know is harmful, such as having high blood pressure, having even having high ApoB, having type two diabetes, um, smoking. We know that those things are harmful and we know how to quantify the harm of those, but the benefit of high fitness, high muscle mass and high strength is, is higher in magnitude. And so when you look at the reproducibility and the consistency of the data, independent of the series, independent of the population you're looking at, 
you can't help but come to the conclusion that this is the single most important thing that we need to do. And the only way to achieve those metrics, that is to say, to have high muscle mass, to have high strength, to have high VO2 max, is to do the training that produces those things. And so just to bridge, the, the why behind the protein consumption is to activate multiple muscle protein synthesis to, to build muscle. So let's spend a moment, let's split up between resistance training and cardio. And let's say that we've got a listener who is busy. They're, 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 they work, they have a life, maybe they're a parent. They have a half hour. That, that's all they, that's all realistically they have. Maybe, maybe they get an hour on the weekends. How do you think about, I've got 30 minutes a day. Wh what should I do? How should I split up cardio versus resistance training? The minimum, minimum, minimum effective dose. Like how do we help that person? Well, the first thing I'd say is like, congratulations. Cause that's, you know, maybe that's not as much as Peter exercises, but who cares? That's still plenty, right? So if you look at the reduction in risk that comes from going from doing zero exercise to doing three hours a week, which is a little less than what this person will end up doing, right? This is a person who's probably going to get to four hours a week of exercise, but just going from zero exercise to four to three hours a week is going to reduce your risk of all cause mortality by 50%. What that means in English is making that change from no exercise to three hours a week means that at any moment in time, your risk of dying in the next year is 50% less than a person who's not exercising, i.e. your former self. So, so let's just say that's fantastic. You can only give me three hours a week or four hours a week. I will take it. Let's run with it. For that individual, I would probably keep it very simple and make it a 50-50. So I would say during the week, Monday, Wednesday, Friday, do 30 minutes of strength. Tuesday, Thursday, do 30 minutes of cardio. And on the weekend, do that hour session as cardio. And we can get into the details of how we would want to mix up the intensity and things like that. But that that's, that's basically the scaffolding. Yeah, I think how do you define something you've talked a lot about zone two, zone three, and the way I like to break zone two down for people who are unfamiliar with it and don't wear that have the wearables, essentially you are slightly out of breath. You, you can kind of hold a conversation, but it's a little bit difficult. Uh, but how do you think, if you're thinking about cardio, what does that look like? Is that sprints? Is that jogging? Is that the stairs? Is it jumping rope? Is it all of the above? Is it training? In my resistance training, I'll go fast. Yeah, no. So I would say for the cardio, you want about 80% of that time to be at zone two and the other 20% to be much closer to your red line. So again, one way that I would do that in our hypothetical case is I would say on the Monday, Wednesday, Friday, just do 30 minutes of zone two each day. So just do 30 minutes at that threshold of you're just about at your limit of being able to talk and it's not that comfortable to talk, but you can. On say Saturday or Sunday, when you do the longer cardio thing, do half of it as zone two and do half of it as intense intervals. Three minutes on, three minutes all out, three minutes rest, three minutes all out, three minutes rest. So then you're, you're, you're getting that VO2 max benefit of training. You're getting the cardio base training on the other four sessions, the Monday, Wednesday, Friday, plus the half session on that weekend day. Um, look, that's a totally, or sorry, it's Tuesday, Thursday, plus half day. It's a totally reasonable training program. You're going to, you're going to make great gains doing that. Now, at some point you're going to plateau and you're going to have to make a decision, which is, am I going to increase intensity or am I going to increase frequency, uh, and duration? Um, because you know, the reality of it is I just think there's when again, when I say I think, it implies it's my opinion. I think the data are quite clear that there's no upper limit to how much benefits you can get for more exercise or at least from more fitness. And what about someone like me who, when I go to the gym, the gym tends to, tends to be a little busy. I just like crank through. So I invariably with doing resistance training, I don't do a lot of rest. I find myself in zone two for most of my <laughs> workout. Is there benefits to that or am I actually... Depends what you're optimizing for. Um, I, I don't think that weight training is a great way to get your zone two in. I think zone two is best achieved through steady state cardio, which could be, you know, running, swimming, riding a bike, climbing a stairmaster, doing all those sorts of things. Um, and again, 
if you're doing your weights on really, really short intervals, such that the cardio aspect of it is what becomes taxing, that's great, but you just have to accept and acknowledge that you are going to make trade-offs, right? You are not going to get as strong as you otherwise would, and you won't necessarily put on as much muscle mass because you're not providing enough stress to the muscle as you would if you gave more rest. Got it. You know, so you definitely, when you talk about the data with exercise, you pointed out the, the data are unambiguous. The data is the data. And in my view, there's just still so much unknown in our world. I'm, I'm curious, you know, I, I don't really quote uh, Donald Rumsfeld much, but there's a great Rumsfeld quote. Uh, you know, there are the known knowns, the known unknowns, and the unknown unknowns. What are some of, I know, what are some of the known <laughs> unknowns you'd like answers to? The, the tools that we can use to measure the effectiveness or efficacy of various interventions are crude. Like we don't have very good biomarkers for the benefits of these things. So we have very good biomarkers for measuring the effectiveness of lipid lowering therapy because we can measure ApoB and ApoB responds directly to lipid lowering therapy. And so we can know in very short periods of time, right? In a matter of weeks, if this thing is working. And then even within a matter of years, we can get a look at the changes in, for example, a coronary artery, looking at a CT angiogram. When it comes to some of the other changes we're making vis-a-vis -vis exercise, um, those have even more profound changes on the body, but they're you know, we can measure some of them, right? Like we can certainly measure fitness and strength in those things. And those become very good, but we're missing a step, right? We're not seeing what the gene transcription looks like. We're not seeing what the methylation pattern or epigenetic changes look like. And we don't know, frankly, what to look for anyway, <laughs> right? So we, we certainly have the technology to measure those things now, but we don't know what we're looking at. And so if you think about sort of what's the sci-fi version of this, well, it would be really great if we knew, for example, if there are drugs or supplements that could be developed that could mimic some of the benefits. You know, that's considered one of the holy grail things in geroscience is could anyone ever come up with nutrition mimicking, so fasting mimicking supplements or exercise mimicking supplements or drugs? And that's just a black box. Like we literally don't have a clue what that would look like. Um, so that's, you know, that's because those are unknowns at the moment. We don't really understand fully how those things exert their benefits. You, you mentioned strength. Why, why grip strength? You've talked about grip strength as a, as a proxy for longevity. What is it about grip strength? Well, I think it's, um, you want to you want to be careful. You don't read too much into this, right? It's sort of like why VO two max, right? So VO two max because is is one. It's we measure it. It's something that's relatively easy to measure. It's very objective, um, but also it speaks to a type of training. To have a high VO two max is not just something you wake up with. You have to train to get it. So having a high VO two max is a proxy for being very fit and training a lot. And similarly, grip strength is relatively easy to measure. It's something that can be, you know, done very objectively from lab to lab, person to person. And it also tells you something about a person, right? People that have a very strong grip are generally very strong people. They're usually people who carry very heavy things. They're not people walking around with those little cheesy 1970s grip squeezer things that you see on infomercials, right? That's not how people strengthen their grip. So I think that grip strength has some obvious benefits, which is our hands are, you know, two of the four most important things we use to interact with the outside world. So if your grip is weak, everything becomes compromised in your connection to the outside world, right? If your grip is weak, you, you know, it means, it tells me that something in that kinetic chain from your lats to your scapula, to your elbow, to your wrist, to your hand is weak. Um, and that's problematic. And if your grip is strong, I know that you are physically robust 
because you have to be doing something to enable a strong grip. And essentially the way to improve that is carry heavy things, walk around with dumbbells. That's how we get there. Yeah. Farmers carries, pull-ups, dead hangs. Again, there's lots of ways. I mean, carrying is hands down the most beneficial way to strengthen your grip because you don't, you can carry less than your body weight. So when a person is starting out, they don't have to carry enormous amounts of weight. And obviously as you get stronger and stronger, I mean, you know, a person can, you know, easily deadlift twice their body weight. So you get, you'll get to the point where you can hold much more than your body weight, but even just to walk, I mean, like when my kids come in the gym with me, I'll just give them, I'll put little kettlebells in their hands that each kettlebell is like a quarter of their body weight. So they're carrying half their body weight and I'll just have them walk around the gym holding those kettlebells. So what do you want to see more of in health and wellness? Where, where do you want the conversation to go from here? Hmm. It's a good question. You know, probably just more back to basics. I, I, I do, and it very, it very much depends on who we're talking about, but I still think there's a little bit of the science fiction approach to longevity that is kind of, you know, we're going to, we're going to sci-fi our way into immortality. Um, and I think that's just sort of ironic given that a lot of the people who are talking that way are some of the least healthy people, uh, just in terms of ostensible health and not taking advantage of the things that we have right in front of us that are, you know, significantly going to move the needle for our own health. So I suppose that I'd like to see more of that. And, and frankly, I'd like to see people major in the major and minor in the minor instead of the reverse. There's a lot of majoring in the minor and minoring in the major. There's a lot of people so worried about this phytonutrient or, you know, this type of tea versus that type of tea or, you know, this elixir or that elixir. And I, I, I just think that they're, they're getting lost in the wrong details. You know, they're, they don't know their VO2 max and yet they are trying to tell me what their telomere length is. It's <laughs> a good one. Uh, let's say you have a, a giant billboard. What's on your billboard, Peter? Mm. I think I would just write Senna. <laughs> you have to go. You have to go to Formula One, huh? Either that or John Cocteau's Tosin. <laughs> I love the spies like that one's Fletch. That's Fletch. Yeah, that's Fletch. That's Chevy Chase. Yes, that's Chevy Chase. I appreciate the uh, appreciate. I appreciate your appreciation for for great eighties comedies, Peter. Tough to cover all that we did in the time we had, but so appreciate it. And uh, you really love Outlive, and encourage everyone to pick it up. And just thank you so much for for the book and all of your contributions. Jason, thank you very much for making the time to read it and uh, making the time to to talk with me today. <laughs>